Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is the Book of Mormon podcast. This discussion is going to be on Helaman chapter 14. So now Samuel the Lamanites with the Nephites in the city of Zarahemla, because they tried to kick him out of the city, he jumps up on top of the of the wall, and uh, you've seen all the paintings of uh, Samuel on the on the top of the wall and how they're trying to get him and shoot arrows at him and so on. And and uh, anyway, that's the Samuel we're talking about. Now, these prophecies of Samuel in chapter 14 were not included in the original text of the Book of Mormon, but were after added uh, when the Savior commanded them to be added when he visited them in the Americas. So as, as the Savior comes in and mentions in 3 Nephi chapter 23 uh, that they were missing some scriptures, uh, the Lord commanded them to write down the prophecies of Samuel, and that's what we have here. Verse 1, And now it came to pass that Samuel the Lamanite did prophesy a great many more things which cannot be written. And behold, he said unto them, Behold, I give unto you a sign, for five years more cometh. And behold, then cometh the Son of God to redeem all those who shall believe on his name. And this is fulfilled in Third Nephi chapter 1. And behold, this will I give unto you for a sign at the time of his coming. For behold, there shall be great lights in heaven, insomuch that in the night before he cometh there shall be no darkness, insomuch that it shall appear unto man as if it was day. Therefore there shall be one day and a night and a day as if it were one day. And there were no night, and this shall be a sign unto you, for ye shall know of the rising of the sun, and also of its setting. Therefore they shall know of a surety that there shall be two days and a night. Nevertheless, the night shall not be darkened, and it shall be the night before he is born. And again, this is fulfilled in Third Nephi chapter 1, verse 15. Hugh Nibley suggests that the light was due to a supernova. He notes that there was such a supernova recorded in the year 1054 that could be seen all over the world. It was almost as bright as the sun. The supernova exploded and became the Crab Nebula today. Verse 5, And behold, there shall a new star arise. And 3 Nephi chapter 1, verse 21 is fulfilled. Our Lord's birth into mortality was accompanied by the appearance of a new star in the heavens. It is apparent that another prophet, or perhaps even a number of prophets in the old world, had also prophesied of this sign. For when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem seeking the Messiah of the Jews, they said, We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The statement seems to assume that the Jews of Jerusalem were aware that a new star would bear record of the holy birth, as at least the leaders were that the birth itself would take place in Bethlehem. After the wise men had been questioned by Herod, the star which they saw in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. There is no Old Testament prophecy on this aspect of the Savior's birth that is comparable to that of Samuel the Lamanite. The nearest allusion is found in the prophecy of Balaam, who, speaking of the Messiah himself, said, There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This prophecy obviously refers to the first coming of Christ, but does not announce itself as indicating a sign of his birth. The only other related passage is in the book of Revelation, where Christ refers to himself as the bright and morning star. The appearance of a star or of a phenomenon of light accompanying the birth of one destined to a significant role in history is a common motif in the literature of the ancient Near East. 
Such legends are but the dim reflection of the lost prophecy of the star that was to announce the Messiah's birth, and that was by Millen McConkie. Continuing verse 5, Such an one as ye never have beheld, and this also shall be a sign unto you. Elder McConkie said, Enlisting the signs to attend the birth of Jesus, Samuel the Lamanite prophesied that a new star would arise. This new star was seen by the whole Nephite nation at the actual time of the heavenly birth is also recorded in the Book of Mormon. There is, however, no comparable messianic prophecy in the Bible as we now have it. The nearest allusion is the one I mentioned in uh, Numbers that, that's spoken of by Balaam. But there can be little doubt that others besides the Nephites knew by revelation that great signs and wonders, including the rise of a new star, were to attend Messiah's birth. The language of the wise men upon reaching Jerusalem clearly assumes that the Jews were just as aware that a new star would bear a record of the holy birth as they were that the birth itself should take place in Bethlehem. Verse 6, And behold, this is not all. There shall be many signs and wonders in heaven, and it shall come to pass that, they, that ye shall be all amazed and wonder insomuch that ye shall fall to the earth. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall believe on the Son of God, the same shall have everlasting life. And behold, thus hath the Lord commanded me by his angel, that I should come and tell this thing unto you. Yea, he hath commanded that I should prophesy these things unto you. Yea, he hath said unto me, Cry unto this people, Repent, and prepare the way of the Lord. And now because I am a Lamanite, and have spoken unto you the words which the Lord hath commanded me, and because it was hard against you, ye are angry with me, and do seek to destroy, destroy me, and have cast me out from among you. And ye shall hear my words, for for this intent, this is his mission, this is what he's doing, this is his purpose, have I come upon the walls of the city, that ye might hear and know of the judgments of God, which do await you because of your iniquities, and also that ye might know the conditions of repentance, and also that ye might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and that ye might know of the signs of the coming to the intent that ye might believe on his name. Samuel here sets forth at least four dimensions of his prophetic call, four reasons why he has been sent to prophesy to the Nephites. One, that the wicked Nephites might know of the judgments of God which should surely come upon the, uh, upon the unrepentant. Two, that the Nephites might know the conditions of repentance. Three, that Samuel might testify of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. And four, that the Nephites might know of the signs of the Lord's coming to the earth. Verse 13, And if ye believe on his name, ye will repent of all your sins, that thereby ye may have a remission of them through, you, through his merits. We are saved by the grace of Christ, not for anything that we can do. Verse 14, And behold again another sign I give unto you, yea, a sign of his death. For behold, he surely must die, that salvation may come. Yea, it behooveth him, and becometh expedient, that he dieth, to bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, that thereby men may be brought into the presence of the Lord. Following the resurrection, we are brought to the Lord for final judgment. Verse 16, Yea, behold, his, this death bringeth to pass the resurrection, and redeemeth all mankind from the last death, I'm sorry, from the first death, that spiritual death for all mankind by the fall of Adam being cut off from the presence of the Lord, are considered as dead, both as to things temporal and to things spiritual. I want to speak a word or two in relation to another death, which is a more terrible death than that of the body. When Adam, our first parent, partook of the forbidden fruit, transgressed the law of God and became subject unto Satan, he was banished from the presence of God and was thrust out into our spiritual darkness, or into our spiritual darkness. This was the first death, yet living he was dead, dead to God, dead to light and truth, dead spiritually, cast out from the presence of God. Communication between the Father and the Son cut off. He was as absolutely thrust out from the presence of God as was Satan and the hosts that followed him. 
That was spiritual death, but the Lord said that he would not suffer Adam nor his posterity to come to the temporal death until they should have the means by which they might be redeemed from the first death, which is spiritual. Therefore angels were sent unto Adam, who taught him the gospel and revealed to him the principles by which he could be redeemed from the first death, and he brought back from banishment and outer darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. He was taught faith, repentance, and baptism for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, who should come in the meridian of time and take away the sin of the world, and was thus given a chance to be redeemed from the spiritual death before he should die to the, the temporal death. Now, all the world today, I'm sorry to say, with the exception of a handful of people who have obeyed the new and everlasting covenant, are suffering this spiritual death. They are cast out from the presence of God. They are without God without gospel truth and without the power of redemption, for they know not God nor his gospel. In order that they may be redeemed and saved from the spiritual death, which has spread over the world like a pall, they must repent of their sins and be baptized by one having authority for the remission of their sins, that they may be born of God. That is why we want these young men to go out into the world to preach the gospel, while they themselves understand but little perhaps the germ of life is in them. That was by Joseph F. Smith. Verse 17, But behold, the resurrection of Christ redeemeth mankind, yea, even all mankind, and bringeth them back into the presence of the Lord. In a sense, all men and women are redeemed by Christ from spiritual death, the separation from God, at least temporarily. One of the blessings of the atonement is that following their resurrection, all persons shall stand before the Holy One of Israel to be judged of the deeds done in the mortal body. Those who have sought to live in accordance with gospel law, and thus have been quickened by a portion of the celestial glory, shall receive a fullness of the same, and thus be fitted and equipped to be with God everlastingly. Those, however, who have lived a terrestrial or telestial law, and thus are quickened by a portion of those respective glories, shall be quickened by a fullness of the same. These shall then be denied the presence of the Father forevermore. Even the sons of perdition, at least, those who received a mortal body, shall stand before God and be judged. They shall be cast out into outer darkness, to a kingdom of no glory. That was by Millet McConkie. Uh, verse 18, Yea, and it bringeth to pass the condition of repentance, that whosoever repenteth, the same is not hewn down and cast into the fire. This fire and brimstone, we are informed, is a representation of the torment which shall be suffered by the wicked. It is not actual fire, but it is the torment of the mind. In other words, it is the punishment which the Savior speaks of, as being the worm that dieth not, and the fire that is not quenched, which shall endure forever. Letting us be, let us be thankful that there will be, the, there will be but few who partake of this dreadful punishment. And that was by Joseph Fielding Smith. But whosoever repenteth not is hewn down and cast into the fire, and there cometh upon them again a spiritual death, yea, a second death. Those who suffer the second spiritual death will be the sons of perdition, for they are cut off again as to things pertaining to righteousness. Those who refuse to repent are cast out of God's presence forever. The Book of Mormon teaches in the extreme from those who inherit the celestial kingdom to those who are sons of perdition. The Doctrine and Covenants fills in the blanks with those who inherit the terrestrial and celestial kingdoms. Verse 19, Therefore repent ye, repent ye, lest by knowing these things and not doing them ye shall suffer yourselves to come under condemnation, and ye are brought down unto this second death. These verses are without peer in the Bible. The New Testament tells the story of how Christ suffered and died in the working out of an, in, of an infinite and eternal sacrifice. Yet it is to such discourses as the one here delivered by Samuel that we must turn to learn why that suffering and death were necessary. Christ died that salvation might come. He died to bring to pass the resurrection of the dead. He died that all men might be redeemed from the effects of Adam's fall. 
He died that all men might enjoy the eternal union of body and spirit, and that there might be a way whereby they could again attain this time forever, the presence of that God who gave them life. Verse 20, But behold, as I said unto you concerning another sign, a sign of his death, behold, in that day that he shall suffer death, the sun shall be darkened, and refuse to give her light unto you, and also the moon and the stars. And there shall be no light upon the face of this land, even from the time that he shall suffer death, for the space of three days, to the time that he shall rise again from the dead. Elder McConkie said, While our Lord's body lay in the tomb, while his eternal spirit preached among the righteous dead, darkness enshrouded the Americas, far removed though they were from the criminal events, no Nephite and no Lamanite would be unaware that their prophets had foretold the death of their Messiah and said that it would be known by three days of dooming darkness. Where else in all the history of the earth have continents been enveloped in darkness for three days? How could such an event do aught but witness the truth of the promised event? Joseph Fielding Smith said, Surely no one who believes in the scriptures and is acquainted with the great and varied miracles performed by Jesus when on the earth can consistently feel that he could give eyesight to the blind, cleanse lepers, command the storms to cease and raise the dead, and would be unable to control the light and the darkness on any part of the earth. It would be just as easy for him to cause darkness on one hemisphere for three days as it would on the other for three hours. Verse 21, Yea, at, that, at the time that he shall yield up the ghost, there shall be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours, and the earth shall shake and tremble, and the rocks which are upon the face of this earth, which are both above the earth and beneath, which ye know at this time are solid, or the more part of it is one solid mass, shall be broken up. Yea, they shall be rent in twain, and shall ever be after found in seams and in cracks, and in broken fragments upon the face of the whole earth, yea, both above the earth and beneath. And behold, there are many... There, there shall be great tempests, and there shall be many mountains laid low, like unto a valley, and there shall be many places, which are now called valleys, which shall become mountains, whose height is great. And many highways shall be broken up, and many cities shall become desolate, and many graves shall be opened, and shall yield up many of their dead, and many saints shall appear unto many. Some have been troubled by the question why both the Bible and the Book of Mormon say that many of the graves were opened, and many of the saints came forth, rather than saying that all the saints were resurrected at this time. The answer to this question must involve the teaching of the gospel in the spirit world. While his body lay in the tomb, Christ visited the faithful spirits in prison, meaning those in the spirit world, and issued calls from among their number for them to commence the teaching of the gospel in the world of the spirits. Thus it may be that among the righteous all received a call to labor as messengers of the Lord, some in the world of spirits and the others among mortals. Those laboring among the spirits presumably were resurrected upon the completion of their mission in the spirit world. Uh, and Elder McConkie continues to say, oh, that was uh, Milton McConkie, so Bruce R. McConkie said, It is perfectly clear that these destructions came as a just judgment upon the wicked, and that they are in similitude of the outpourings of wrath that shall come upon the whole world at the second coming. But they also came as a sign and a witness to the righteous and who, who remained and who were not destroyed. Verse 26, And behold, thus hath the angel spoken unto me, for he said unto me that there shall be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours. And he said unto me that while the thunder and the lightning lasted, and the tempest, that these things should be, and that darkness should cover the face of the whole earth for the space of three days. And the angel said unto me that many shall see greater things than these, to the intent that they might believe that these signs and these wonders should come to pass upon all the face of this land, to the intent that there should be no cause for unbelief among the children of men. And this, is the, and this to the intent that whosoever will believe might be saved, 
and that whosoever will not believe, a righteous judgment might come upon them. And also, if they are condemned, they bring upon themselves their own condemnation. As the heavens rejoiced with signs and wonders to attest the birth of God's Son, so they lamented his death from the time he gave up the ghost until the time that he arose again. The new world mourned in darkness. <clears throat> Thus, for the space of three days, there was no light on the face of the land. For a space of three hours, thunder and lightning voiced anguish for Christ's suffering while the earth shook and trembled. Rocks above and beneath the earth were rent, while mountains became valleys and valleys became mountains. This three hours that's being mentioned here uh, that are at the time of Christ probably occurred between noon and 3 p.m. on the old world when Jesus was again suffering all of the effects of the atonement while he hung on the cross just prior to his death. Verse 30, And now remember, remember, my brethren, that whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself. Joseph Smith said, The great misery of departed spirits in the world of spirits where they go after death is to know that they come short of the glory that others enjoy and that they might have enjoyed themselves, and they are their own accusers. Continuing verse 30, And whosoever doeth iniquity doeth it unto himself. For behold, ye are free, ye are permitted to act for yourselves. For behold, God hath given unto you a knowledge, and he hath made you free. Elder Packer said, Remember, my brethren, ye are free. If you feel pressed in, and pressured and not free, it may be for one of two reasons. One, if you have lost freedom, possibly it has been through some irresponsible act of your own. Now you must regain it. You may be indentured, indentured to some habit of laziness or indolence. Some even become slaves to addiction. The other reason is that maybe if you are not free, you have not earned it. Freedom is not a self-preserving gift. It has to be earned and it has to be protected. For instance, I am not free to play, to play the piano for I do not know how. I cannot play the piano. The ability to play the piano, the freedom to do that, has to be earned. It is a relatively expensive freedom. It takes an investment of time and of discipline. This discipline begins, as discipline usually does, from without. I hope that you do not have contempt for discipline that originates from without. That is the beginning. A parent usually presses a youngster to practice the piano. But somewhere, it is hoped, practice grows into self-discipline, which is really the only kind of discipline. The discipline that comes from within is that which makes a young person decide that he wants to be free to play the piano and play it well. Therefore, he is willing to pay the price, then he can be free from supervision, from pressure, from whatever forms of persuasion parents use. Verse 31, <clears throat> He hath given unto you that ye might know concerning that ye might know good from evil, and he hath given unto you that ye might choose life or death, and ye can do good and be restored unto that which is good, or have that which is good restored unto you, or ye can do evil and have that which is evil restored unto you. Richard G. Scott said, Parents don't make the mistake of purposely intervening to soften or eliminate the natural consequences of your child's deliberate decisions to violate the commandments. Such acts reinforce false principles, open the door for more serious sin, and lessen the likelihood of repentance. Elder Packer said, Another scripture is very important for a teacher to understand. All men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. Parents and teachers need to know that a youngster can tell right from wrong. This knowledge may be, re may be distorted or perverted or covered up in unfortunate life experiences, but intuitively, as a part of the spiritual endowment of all humanity, there is a knowledge of right from wrong. That gives me great hope, for then I understand that every child of God, however reprobate he may have become, however degenerate he may seem to be, has hidden within him the spark of divinity and a, and a sensitivity to that which is wrong as compared to that which is right. I bear testimony that these things are true and that as we uh, listen to the words of, of uh, 
Samuel the Lamanite here and do all that we can to repent and choose good over evil that we will be happy in the next life and in, the, and in this life as well. I bear this testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you in the, in the next podcast. Bye.